Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 9 as we return to our study in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, a Bible study that I've entitled, The Perfect Eternal Tabernacle of God. We have been spending the last few weeks in our study in Hebrews looking at the tabernacle, that portable tent, that place of worship that was prescribed by God. And in it, we were looking at all the pieces of the tabernacle and how they point and are symbolic and are types of Jesus Christ. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, we chose to speak in detail about them, looking at each of them. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians that were tempted to go backwards. Because when it comes to moving forward in our relationship with God, for us as believers, when it comes to moving forward in Christ, the Bible gives us a lot of encouragement that the key is to remain in Him. Sometimes that's referred to as abiding in Christ. Sometimes we'll refer to that as pressing forward, moving on, that our eyes would be focused upon him, that, that we would not take our eyes off of him. Or there's even a phrase that's used in the world where you, we say, keep your eyes on the prize. Well, when we use that phrase for us as Christians, when we say, keep your eyes on the prize, keep your eyes firmly fixed, the prize is Jesus Christ. That any time you take your eyes off of him, you're going to be in trouble. Now, you think, what does that mean, Ed? Well, think of driving. I don't know if you've noticed, but you generally drive in the direction of your eyes. You, you may not realize that, but you will realize it. That moment that you take three extra seconds looking at that billboard to where you feel bump, 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 bump. Because your car very gradually veered over toward where your eyes were. And they've got those little indentations on the side of the road to remind you, get back on track. And isn't life like that? Our eyes begin to veer left and right and our lives follow. And it's important that we keep our firm, fixed position following Jesus Christ. Because going backward is very easy. And I would even say going backward is easier than going forward. Anyone want to say amen to that? It's true. Going backward is much easier. 
It's harder making progress. It's harder enduring trials, temptations. We live in a culture that every single, we eat in this culture, live in this culture, work in this culture, play in this culture, like everything. We are in this culture that is primarily 99.9% against God. There is not a tremendous amount of worship in this culture. So much so that we gather together to be strengthened to go back out into the culture to be the salt and light of the earth. And you live in this culture, it's like it's constantly, constantly going after you, tempting you, pressuring you, making you feel and believe and think and going after your mind, things that truly aren't consistent. And you add to that, you add to that a lack of Bible reading. If you just aren't reading your Bible, you're in trouble. You go, well, Ed, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you're just not, you're, you're not renewing your mind. You're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so if you're not in the word, you're in the world. And the world's going to influence you, whether you like it or not. It's easier to go backward than it is to go forward. We, we get tired. We get tempted. We lose heart. Things are fuzzy. We get hurt. We grieve. We go through overwhelming pressure and trials and difficulties. And, you know, it's, don't think of going backward because it's easy to, when you're thinking of going backward, thinking of backsliding. Because some of you are like, well, you know, I've never really experienced a serious season of backsliding before. And so in our minds, we're thinking going forward is a bunch of steps and going backward is a bunch of steps. But let me add this to your thinking. Going backward is not only backsliding. You start going backward when you stop going forward. You, stop going, you start going backward when you stop going forward. So think of it this. Well, you know what? I'm just standing still and taking a rest right now. Well, that's the beginning of going backward. If you aren't moving on and you aren't pressing in, you're going backwards. And it doesn't have to be a huge backslidden experience. You could have all the outward emotions of religion and still be dissonant. Imagine that. You could be here today in a building dedicated. We call it the house of God. You're in the house today worshiping God. And some of you are as far from God as you've ever been in your life. Imagine that. You're in the house of God worshiping or among worshipers, but inside you are as far from God as you've ever been in your whole life because religion doesn't save you. And you can choose to be somewhere physically and not be there spiritually. And that's just what Hebrews is trying to teach us, especially when it comes to the tabernacle here. It was all outward. It, was, it had a purpose and God used it, but it didn't save a person. It didn't save a person. And so he describes the, the tabernacle in the first few verses, and we looked at that in depth. Pick up in verse 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, that's all the tabernacle, all the elements of tabernacle, which was required to worship God in the old covenant. We, we also refer to that as the Mosaic covenant. We also refer to that as the law. So he says, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was, mark this, we've looked at this, but I want you to see it. it was symbolic. And we've looked at some of the symbols. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, 
which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. Circle those phrases. Symbolic. So remember, this sim- symbolism in the Bible, pictures in the Bible, types in the Bible are significant and important, but not more important than the substance. So there's pictures and types that are important. The tabernacle was important, but not more important than Jesus Christ. And that's the whole theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He is the end. You have everything by faith in him. He is the sufficiency. He is the substance. So the tabernacle was important and vital, but it was symbolic. And it was not more important than Jesus. And then secondly, the old covenant, the sacrifices in verse 9 that were offered, cannot make him who performed the service perfect. That was the weakness of the law. All your good deeds, all your good righteous acts, all your sacrifices, the blood that was shed did not make a person perfect. It didn't touch the inside of a person. And it's the same is true for you and me. Your performance, your good deeds, the attitude you may have today, well, I'm a good person, pastor. That, that's gonna get me into, God loves me because I'm a good person. Well, First of all, I'm grateful that you see the goodness in your life. I'm grateful that you are a help to society, not a a harm to society. I'm glad that you have a heart for the homeless and you have a heart. I'm glad that you're good in that sense. But compared to Jesus Christ, you're not that good. You're not that good. As good as we are, we're not that good. Because good defined by God is perfection. And let me tell you something. There isn't anyone among us that's perfect. We have, the Bible says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that when you come to worship, it doesn't make you perfect. When you pray, it doesn't make you perfect. When you read your Bible, it doesn't make you perfect. Let me put it this way. Let's just say that you read your Bible for 10 hours last night. 10 hours. And you come to church and you meet a person that's read their Bible 10 minutes. Now, if you're not careful, you'll be kind of looking and go, okay, you know what? Maybe let's say it this way because the math will be easier. You're the 10 hours and they read their Bible for an hour. And so you're like, I am 10 times more loved than that guy. If you want to be loved like me, you should read your Bible 10 hours. I'm going 11 tomorrow and I'm doing 12 because I know that God loves me more when I do more. Not true. It's simply not true. God loves the person that didn't read their Bible in Christ by faith. He loves you when you don't read your Bible as much as when you do. And then you say, well then, Ed, why read my Bible? Well, because you live in a culture that is anti-God. And it's in God's word that you learn of him and you grow of him. Why sit through a Bible study except to learn the heart of God and his desire for your life? It's not to earn anything from God. If you get 10 minutes or 10 hours, God will not love you more than he does right now. But I can say this, you can read your Bible for 10 hours and not mean it. Like you could just read through, you can do one of those speed reading. I read the whole Bible in 10 hours. No, you didn't. God knows and he loves you. It's not the performance, performance as a believer in Jesus Christ does not make you more lovable before God. I'm glad that God doesn't judge us by our performance. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble. Because it's not by works that we've been saved and neither is it by works that we live but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he says it can't make you perfect. You can't be perfected by your acts and by your works. Only God. So that when they brought the blood through the priest, 
for the sacrifice. It wasn't the blood, it wasn't the priest, it wasn't the tabernacle that saved the children of Israel. Who was it? God. It's always about God. Never forget that. It's not about my good deeds, it's about his good deed. It's not about my changed life, it's about his changing my life. It's all, the focus is always on God. That's one of the reasons why people stay away from the Bible because as soon as you open the Bible, you remember that God, it's God. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning, Ed, or your name. It's in the beginning, God. Everything begins and ends with him. And so when we look at the tabernacle, it didn't make anybody perfect. So then you ask, well, then why did they bring the animals to the top? Why did they build the tabernacle? Why did they follow God's instructions? Well, it's this principle. God will always bless obedience. There isn't ever a time in all of human history that God did not bless obedience. And so when you came through and you, remember it was a, it's known as a covenant. And the definition of a covenant is a, a binding agreement. And God, he initiated that covenant with man and said, if you do, then I will. And so as they followed their, bar, their side of the covenant, their side of the agreement, then God then blessed them. Because as true as it is that God always blesses obedience, understand this, God never blesses disobedience. You will never find the will of God in disobedience. You will never find the blessings of God in disobedience. You will never find the fullness of life. You will never find freedom. You will never find hope, strength, love through disobedience and compromise. Never, ever, never. And so why follow through with the agreement? Well, because then that kept you in relationship with God. It kept you close. When I open my Bible in the morning, it's not so I can stand before you and say, I did my devos today. That's not why I did that. That's, when I open the Bible, I'm reminded of God's love for me. I'm reminded of his change in my life. I'm reminded that it's not about the book. It's not about the written word as much as it is about the living word, Jesus Christ. And I need to be reminded of that because I live in the same world you do. I operate in the same culture you do. I'm faced with many of the same temptations you do. And as we face them together, God strengthens us and helps us and comforts us and encourages us and reminds us of his love. The law did not bring you to the end. So for the Hebrews, for them to leave faith in Jesus Christ, to go back to Judaism, this religious system, to go back to the old covenant would have been an utter failure. And it would have kept them in circular uh, frustration because if they were, it, it doesn't make any sense. Just like backsliding absolutely makes no sense that you would go back to the world to find the satisfaction, peace, and comfort that you're lacking right now only to find that the world's gonna kick you in the tail again and beat you up and ruin you and hurt you and now you got more consequences and then you come back to the Lord broken and humble but now it's, it just makes any sense because you just keep going in this circle. And if that's you today and you keep living a circular life as a believer, repent today and stay put in Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the world. It has nothing for you. Going back to the party scene isn't going to get you where you want to go. Going back to relationship after relationship is not going to get you where you want to go. Finding yourself in a place of satisfying those cravings and things in your life by stuff that will destroy you isn't going to get you where you want to go. And for these guys that Hebrews are written to, if they were to go back to the law, you know what the law would tell them? Go to Jesus. That's exactly what it would say. He has come. What are you coming back to me for? 
All these pictures and types and symbols, they're fulfilled. And that is the entire summary of the book of Hebrews. If you go back to the law, first of all, don't go back. But if you do go back to the law, it's just going to point you to Jesus. And the reason it's important for us on a variety of different levels, but one, one important reason is that there are those uh, around town and around, you know, those, there are those that hold or going back to the Torah. And they're emphasizing the law. And they're emphasizing the feasts. And they're emphasizing things, although they say it's really not for salvation, it, it really comes out that way. So they'll come to you and they'll ask you, do you keep the feasts? And the answer to that is, yes. You go, Ed, I've never seen a feast around here. I'll get to that in a second. Somebody comes to you and says, do you keep the law? Do you keep the fullness of the law? The answer to that is, yes. And they go, come on, man. You don't keep the law. You're a failure. You made mistakes. And I said, yeah, I am a failure and I have made mistakes. Then how can you say you keep the law? Which is a great question to answer because it's very simple. You say this, I keep the law and I keep the feast and I keep the entirety of the old covenant by faith in Jesus Christ because he kept it for me. You don't have to be stumbled by, well, you know, if you're not participating in these things and you're not doing these things, you're not a real Christian. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not true. By faith in Jesus Christ, you have it all. There isn't anything more outside of faith in Christ. And so notice, he says that in the old covenant, access to God was very limited. Only once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood. He, they would do all of their work, and then once a year the high priest would go in. On the day of atonement, he would go in to offer the blood of the sacrifice of God for the sins of the people. That was the way that God prescribed, and it happened only once a year, but notice it had to happen every year. It had to happen every year, it wasn't finished, it wasn't complete. The system happened every year until the promised savior that's what Messiah means, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. But before God, it would happen until God himself would come down in human flesh. Jesus Christ would offer his blood once for all. And so by the time of the time of Jesus and the time of the writing of Hebrews in this time period... It was a fascinating thing. I want to read to you. I don't normally do this, but I want to read to you an extended passage from a commentary because he did a much better job describing this than I ever would to consider. Because we think of, I know sometimes I think of when I'm reading something in my imagination, I think, okay, the guy goes in, throws blood, comes back out. Check this out. Listen to, listen to the system and how everyone would see it. And I quote, the week before Yom Kippur, the pre high priest would never leave the temple ground for every day of that week, he would rehearse what he would do on the Day of Atonement. When that day finally came, arrayed in his high priestly robes, the high priest would sacrifice a bull on the brass altar in the courtyard as a dedication offering. That done, he would take off his high priestly garments and put on his linen garments, long underwear really, covered with a tunic and a sash. Then he would sacrifice another bull as a sin offering for himself. At this point, two goats would be chosen by lot and a red scarlet cord would be tied around one signifying that it was the sacrificial goat. The other goat we know as the scapegoat would be carried into the wilderness. Why two goats you ask? Because our sins are not only forgiven but they're also forgotten, carried away as far as the east is from the west. 
The priest would then take the coals from, outside, from the outside altar with two handfuls of incense into the holy place. And as he put them on the altar of incense, a cloud would fill the room. Returning to the brass altar, he would carry the blood that had drained from the bowl back into the holy place. And this time he would go through the veil into the holy of holies where he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the ground, seven times on the mercy seat. After that, he would sacrifice the sacrificial goat, take its blood back into the holy of holies where he would sprinkle it again seven times on the ground, seven times on the mercy seat. Finally, after sacrificing the bull and going into the Holy of Holies, and after sacrificing the goat and going into the Holy of Holies, he would come back out, place his hand upon the living goat, and saying, bear and be gone. In other words, bear the sin and take it away. And then they'd release the goat, and it would run out toward Watkins and toward Bennett, and it's still running toward Lyman right now, all the way out. I mean, that's what it would be like. We, I would want it running that way. And then as you're watching it run, you'd re- be remembered symbolically that that goat is carrying your sins as far as the east. So you would not see it. And if it turned around to come back, you would say, no, go back, get away. Because there are times when you're reminded of your sins, aren't there? And you've got to have that visual. I mean, this was a very elaborate thing. Let me continue. Then at last, this priest would stand before the people. With both hands, he would pronounce, forgiven. And the people would begin to hoop and holler and celebrate. Because if the priest wasn't purified properly, if he went into the holy place presumptuously, his resulting death would signify that they weren't forgiven. So the people always waited to see if the high priest would make it out of the holy of holies. Are we forgiven, they wondered. Did the sacrifices work? Is God pleased Are we okay? So I love how the commentator now ties it. Let me give you one more paragraph. He ties it in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is amazing because the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. All of it from beginning to end. One of the richest things you can do to enhance your Bible reading is to look for the pictures and the types of Jesus Christ. They're everywhere. So check this out. He says, don't you see what happened concerning our high priest, Jesus Christ? The whole world was waiting and watching without even knowing what they were watching for. And our great high priest who was wrapped in white linens emerged from the Holy of Holies on Easter morning coming out of that tomb. You say, the tomb being the Holy of Holies? Well, certainly. He says, when, remember when the disciples were peeking in the tomb that morning? They saw a, brent, a bench sprinkled with blood, his blood where his body had lain. And we are told by the gospel writer that on either side of the bench sat an angel. Remember the Holy of Holies? The mercy seat had two angels looking at one another. And thus the picture of a blood-sprinkled mercy seat was complete. And when Jesus Christ came out of the tomb on that third day, it was the final declaration of forgiveness, not just for a year, but for all of eternity. It's so beautiful. It was more than just walking in and walking out. Like God's work was complete in Jesus Christ. And so as he speaks, he says, look, the the priest did this every year. But in Jesus, it's complete. It's eternal. And that's where he now, he comes to the the contrast in verse 11. And, And everything has a contrast. Whatever you're facing today, whatever difficulty is, whatever question you have, it always comes, but Christ. And he says, but Christ came as the high priest 
of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. And mark these words, once for all. The blood of Jesus Christ is available to whosoever will let him come. And it happened once. Jesus isn't crucified over and over again. He gave his blood once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, eternal salvation. It's not the blood of animals, it says, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, Jesus is the mediator, verse 15, of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus' finished work changes you on the inside, not just gives you external worship. See, nothing external will save you. No amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible study, being raised in a, a Christian home, um, you know, the, the kiddos that receive a Bible, you know, they, as they're reading it, it's going to bring them to salvation in Christ. It's not the book that saves, it's God that saves. It's not a church that saves, it's God that saves. It's not your performance, it's not your good deeds. Nothing external will give you access and fellowship and communion with God. And, you know, some, of you, some, some have approached the church that says, well, you know, if I just give, can I give a lot without putting me in a greater status with God? No, you give a lot because God gave you a lot. It doesn't give you any different sta- status. Jesus made that clear, whether it's the widow with a, half, a couple half pennies or it's the rich guy giving to God, it doesn't matter because the amount is proportionate to what God entrusted to you. And so if you've been entrusted with much and you throw a couple pennies in there, that is not real heartfelt giving. But if you have a couple pennies and you give them both, you've given more than anyone else because it's not your performance, it's your heart. God does the work on the inside. And a lot of you are, are, are hesitant Many people are hesitant to respond to the good news of the gospel that your sins can be forgiven because you just really don't believe that God could save you. Like you look at your life and you know that you have difficulties, you know you have problems. Nobody needs to convince you of that. And so you hear the opportunity to receive the forgiveness of your sins. You hear the opportunity that God can change your life. You hear that, but then you think, no, I, I don't think so because I'm so bad. Maybe if I, so you think you got 10 things that are really bad in your life and you think, you know, if I could just clean up five of them, I'll come back and then maybe God will forgive me. Like, like if I just clean my act up a little bit, then God will really forgive me. And so you leave here going, no, not today. I'm not good enough to be saved. I'm more, I'm more horrible than that pastor even knows. And, and I, the reason I describe that to you is not just by my experience with others, but that's how I felt although not to that degree, like I didn't have a list or anything, but I walked into a church just like this. And I sat, a chair, I sat in a chair just like you. And, and I was listening to a Bible study going forward and I was listening to the invitation and I'm thinking, man, I hear what that guy's saying, but it can't, he can't possibly be talking to me. I, like I look around the room and I see thousands of people in there and I think, you know what? The love of God is probably for all these good people, but I'm really bad. Every Larry of my life, I was bad. 
Like I'm just, I was just a really bad person. And so I would walk out of a room like that going, no, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I even concluded that I was too bad. I was beyond, I was hopeless. And I just, I held that against myself. I was hopeless. There's no way it's going to happen. Until God broke through and said, no, 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 this is the work of God. God doesn't want you to leave here to go change your life and then come back. He wants you to surrender your life today and he'll change your life. Like God loves you. He wants you to come as you are. He accepts you today. Jesus Christ accepts you as you are. You think you're bad? God knows more about you. You're badder than you think that you're bad. Like you're worse. You're worse. Like you say, well, Ed, I'm really down here. No, there's actually a lower place. You're actually lower than that. And God still loves you. And we don't judge you because we've been down there ourselves. We haven't forgotten where we came from. And you don't need to leave here today to go clean up your act so you, you're somehow okay and presentable to God. You'll never get to that place. Even if you're the person that says, I'm a good person, you are still just as separated from God as the really, really bad person. Because God, he doesn't use those categories. It's just you're either a sinner that's not saved or you're a sinner that's saved. Those are the only two categories of people. And it's not going to be outward religion that saves you. Just because you're doing a couple good deeds, it's not going to make you any more presentable before God. See, God receives you and loves you as you are. But once you commit your life to him, he won't let you stay as you are. And he begins the work on the inside. So, like, for example, you, you could have a real big deal with, uh, with drinking. You know, you're a drunkard today. You're just, that's, you just can't get out from under it. It's just so hard. Okay, so you can make a decision today. I will stop drinking. And that will be a very good decision. It's a very good decision not to live in that state of being. That would be a great decision. And you could probably do it for a while. But it would be a burden. It would be hard. There would be temptations. It would always be on your mind. It would be very, very difficult. But you can do it, and you could probably get through, and, and that one area of your life, you could probably make great progress. As I was talking to a brother first service, you know, whenever I hear about past addictions, one of my first questions is this, how long have you been sober? The brother says, four months. I go, man, that's good, four months. And I looked at him, and then he started sharing with me. Well, it's four months now, and then I have a relapse, and up and down, up and down. And that's when I get to look him in the eye. I go, look, bro. I have been sober 28 years by the grace of God. You want to be delivered. You want to be delivered. And you've got to let God do the work. You've got to surrender to his power. He'll do it on the inside. He'll pull it out of your life. You don't have to worry about it anymore. He will deliver you by faith and surrender. That's where it's at. And today, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, he will start the work on the inside. It's not the building. It's not the pastor. It's not the teaching. It's the life-giving work of God on the inside. That's what it means to be born again. You're a new creation in Christ. The kind of commitment that you'll be making is like the same exact commitment that a couple makes when they're married. You get all excited about the wedding day. You're prepping and planning. You finally arrive. You exchange your vows. You put your rings on and you say, I do, I do. And there is no question in your mind or anyone else that you have made a covenant and you leave the altar different than when you walked up. You have to. And therefore, therefore, after the covenant, you know what? You begin to live differently. Automatically. 
You get to learn a little bit of, you know, how to live and how to do it. But you automatically begin to live as a married person. If you don't, you won't be married for long. You know, it's like, but you did. It's like a covenant. You make an agreement and you live differently. Well, imagine that. You make a covenant, but God empowers you to live differently. There's nothing like it on the earth. That's why going backwards doesn't make any sense. Approaching God religiously doesn't make any sense. It's not from him. Jesus Christ, he's the but Christ. Whatever issue you in your life, whatever difficulty, it's but Christ. He's the high priest. He fulfilled it. He serves the greater, more perfect tabernacle. Don't go backwards to the imperfect. You are perfect in Christ. He entered once for all. It doesn't have to be every year. Jesus did it. It's eternal redemption. And it's so cool. A couple things before we head. I was going to say head out, but we're not heading out because we're ending in worship. And nobody can leave. The doors are locked. And your cars are gone. And we'll bring them back. So a couple things to think of before we head out before we end in worship and respond, okay? Consider this in your holy imagination. As you were bringing your animal in the old covenant, you were bringing your animal to the priest to sacrifice and you would bring it to the priest. Do you know that the priest would not examine you? The priest would examine the animal. When you brought the animal, the animal needed to be clean without blemish. And once the animal was inspected, then you could offer that animal and that animal's blood would be on your behalf. And so you weren't the ones that were being examined. The animal was. There was no condemnation for the person bringing the animal. You didn't have to account for 365 days of sin. You didn't have to bring a list. You didn't have to bring all the things you struggle with. You just brought the animal and the animal took care of it on your behalf. They were checking out that animal for being without spot and blemish. There was no condemnation. And let me say, today, one of the attacks, the most popular attack of the enemy is to point out all your failures and all your sins and all your weaknesses and all your mistakes and all your fill in the blank. Sometimes we do that to each other. Christians can be some of the most hypercritical, hyperjudgmental people on the earth. Lord, forgive us. Show us mercy. Who are we to be sniffing out sin in other people's lives? May we be agents of grace and love in people's lives because people are messed up. It doesn't matter what sin they're into. Apart from Christ, we're all messed up. Why are we so judgmental? Because when we come to the Father, he doesn't examine us like that. He doesn't point out, you know what, you've got six weaknesses, come back when you, he doesn't do that. Instead, when we come to the altar, we come to the altar with the Lamb of God that takes away the, and he's the one that's examined. We hide in him. In me, there is no good thing. Can you say that for yourself? In you, there's no good thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, in you, there's no good thing. Say it. Tell somebody. Not everybody's participating. Do it. Do it. That's what the Bible says. Paul said, that's the, so you got Ed, don't make me say something's not in the Bible. I didn't. The Bible says, in me, there is no good thing. Everything redeemable about me is because of Jesus. I owe him my life. I owe him everything. And so do you. So, so here, stay with me. Stay with me. Because it's not just other people. You accuse yourself. Sometimes we, we blame the devil for things that we do to ourselves. And you can be your own worst critic. And you're the one that says, oh, what a failure I am. 
look what a loser I am. You know, sometimes it's as adult, you know, as our kids get older and they start to stray or they make bad decisions, parents carry this great burden. Oh man, I could have done this and I could have done that and I could have and I'm this. And you just start to beat yourself up. You start to carry burdens you were never intended to carry. And you start to hypercritically judge yourself. You start to beat yourself up. You start to condemn yourself instead of looking to the cross. The devil will often, you'll hear things, you're a hypocrite, you're a liar, you're a loser, and what happens? You won't worship anymore. You won't come into his presence. I dare say there is one person at least watching online right now, one person at least on the radio right now that isn't among the company of believers, whether here, because this is their church, or wherever they go to church, because they are under the weight of condemnation and they believe they don't deserve to be in church. They believe they don't deserve to worship. They believe they don't deserve. And they hold themselves back because they'd rather be under the weight of condemnation than pressing in and admitting. Because that voice isn't always condemnation. Sometimes God reveals things into us. It's actually not condemnation at all. It's conviction. And remember the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction will lead you toward God. Condemnation will lead you away from God. But the voice, you know, the problem is the voice sounds very similar, <laughs> dealing with the same stuff in our lives. And so before we go, I want to give you a little list of, to, to share with you if you deal with condemnation. Now, I've developed this in a deeper study. So if you go on the app and there's a section up there, it's a series of studies on freedom, free from your past. And, and that's a series you can go through if this is something you deal with. But I want to repeat for the sake of our time today. I want to repeat a few of these things just so you can, you can understand where you are and commit it and surrender it to God. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. So when you're in Christ, he's the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, one that's not based on performance, one that changes you on the inside. So if you are dealing with condemnation, let me give you a few signs and a few symptoms of a person that deals with condemnation. Ready? Number one, if condemnation is an issue in, the, in your life, you always feel guilty. You always feel guilty. Whether or not you've done anything wrong, you're always feeling guilty. It's heavy and doesn't ever seem to go away. Number two, if you deal with condemnation, you are often motivated by guilt. And what that means is when someone lays a guilt trip on you, you spring into action. And even if someone doesn't lay a guilt trip on you, you turn it into a guilt trip and move on. And you do it because you feel so guilty. And you feel guilty if you don't do it. It's just a shadow over your life. Thirdly, a person that deals with condemnation, listen to this one carefully, is often known as a people pleaser. A people pleaser. What the Bible calls, you live with the fear of man. And you're always worried about what people think about you. And if you do something good, you want appreciation. If you don't get appreciation, you feel bad. Instead of just pleasing the Lord, a person with condemnation is always worried about what people think about them, how people view them. And you're a people pleaser. Any people pleasers in the house say, hey. Yeah, 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 just say, make sure you know you're not alone. I know you're like, I'm not saying hey. Well, we know who you are, so don't worry about it. I think there's a little bit of that in all of us, but some more than others. Number four, you deal with uh, condemnation, number four, you always feel like God is mad at you. You always feel like God's upset. The mistakes you've made are always plaguing you. 
when you sit down to read your Bible, when you pray, when you're thinking about worshiping, when you're just so burdened by your past mistakes. And so much so that you actually think that God is really, really mad at you and will never accept you because you're so bad. And even if you're good today, you can think of something bad you did yesterday and you're right back into that place. Number one, you always feel guilty. Two, you're motivated by guilt. Three, you're a people pleaser. Four, you feel like God is mad at you. Number five, this is a real common one, you feel like you can never do enough. (laughs) You feel like you can never do enough. You could surf for hundreds of hours. You could read your Bible and pray all night long. You could even do a 40-day, 40-night complete water fast. And at the end, think, I could have done 41 days. And you're just not happy with the end product. And this is a big problem because our culture has actually glorified this particular feeling in a different way. Because we don't often think of, we don't often think I'm never really happy with myself. But let me give you, a, let me give you something to consider. For those of you that are, well, the world has a word for this, and it's the word perfectionism. The perfectionist is never happy with what they do. And they're always trying to improve it. You know, people at work, they are jealous of you. You know, like you'll do a project and you have done it 50 times before you present it to the office. You know, you, what people don't know is it took you, you, you changed it 50 times, boom, boom, boom. And even when you bring it to the office, you're still thinking, I should have changed that, I should have changed that. When your whole team is saying, I wish you were on our team, we just gave you the project and went to, you know, go have some pizza. But you're looking at it and going, it's not enough, it's not good enough, I didn't do it good enough, and I could have done that. Oh, look at that mistake. And then you're just so beat up when everybody's happy with what you did. You went over the top. But perfectionism is something that's, you know, some of you might even think, yeah, I'm a perfectionist and I'm happy about it. But it plagues you. Perfectionism is a form of pride. Instead of just being satisfied and content with what you did, you're always unhappy with what you did. And you know, that that crosses over. That crosses over into your relationship with God where you're never really happy with what God's doing right now. You think he'd do it better, and you could do it better. And so you're gonna, you read an hour, but you gotta read two. You read two, you gotta read three. You read three, and you know, one of the reasons is because you don't see immediate change. Like a sin is plaguing you, you go, well, I'm gonna read a Bible. You read the Bible, and you're still tempted with that same thing. And you go, well, maybe I didn't read enough, so I'm gonna read more. And so you read more, and then you're still tempted by the same thing. Well, I didn't read enough, it's all my fault. No, it's that performance doesn't change your heart. Only God changes your heart. And that's the key. So you come to God and then Bible reading will be a joy to you. And then finally, condemnation is often an issue with people that like to live in the past. And let me clarify, not the good past, but the bad past. You're always looking in the rear view mirror of your sins. The things you've done are always on your mind, even if they were done 25 years ago. You won't forgive yourself. And I, that's, I don't mean that phrase like the world uses it. Forgiving yourself from a biblical perspective means that you accept the forgiveness of God for your sins. Because those of you that refuse to forgive yourself have actually made yourself a little God in your life. Your unforgiveness is actually an, has become idolatry for you. What, what a person that says, well, I'll never forgive. I know other people are forgive, but I'll never forgive myself. This is what that looks like behind the scenes. What that looks like behind the scenes is simply this. You are saying that if I was God, I would not forgive myself for this sin. So therefore, I will not forgive myself. But what you're doing is, is like, hey, wait a minute. God said he forgave that through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just accept it. 
but instead you say, I will not accept the forgiveness of God because I will hold it against myself the rest of my life. And just let it go. Let the Lord do a work in your heart. Be free from condemnation. It's not the outward. Hebrews is teaching us, don't go backwards. It's not the outward. God changes. It's the new covenant, not the old covenant. And as we enter in a time of song and we just respond to the work of God, let him speak to you. Let him minister to you. Let him free you. Use this stage as an altar. It'll be all open up here. You can come and kneel down. You can lay face down. You can stand with arms up. You can sit. You can express yourself and give these things to the Lord. Let it be memorable. One of the reasons we allow that movement and we encourage that movement really is that you have something in your mind to say, I laid that on the altar, man. I gave that to the Lord. This was the day. You write it in your Bible. This was the day. What's today's date? July 7th. So this is it. July 7th. I gave it to the Lord. And you got something to look back to and go, no, I gave it to the Lord. That's the day. That was the change. And for some of you, this is the day, July 7th, that you give your life to Jesus Christ. So I'm not even, even going to end in prayer. I'm just going to invite you right now. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to stand to your feet because I want to lead you in a prayer where you can dedicate your life to Jesus. So if that's you, just stand up right where you are and I want to pray with you that today would be the day that God enters into a relationship with you by faith through your repentance, his finished work. That's the purpose. That's the reason. That's why we've gathered together so that you would enjoy the love of God in the simplicity of faith that I had, those little kiddos had letting me hold them. God wants you to respond as a father that he might hold your life and forgive you of your sins. Is there anyone here that say, Ed, that's me? And just go ahead and stand up and there's a public commitment and decision to follow Jesus Christ today and I want to help you fulfill what the Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Anyone here? Well, there are people connected with us outside the building, people in the nursing mom's room, in the family room, downstairs, on the radio, on the internet. And maybe you, you're like, I don't know about this. It's kind of weird standing in front of all these people. And it's not weird at all, but I respect where you're at. Wherever you might be, near or far, jail, cell, hospital room, whatever you might be, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So you could pray with me. You could say, God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus to live for me, to die for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I dedicate my life to following you, Jesus, from this day forward. I submit my life to you and ask you to help me to turn away from my sins, to repent. And Father, I know anywhere that your gospel goes forth, it does hit the hearts of people. And it does speak to their hearts and their minds. And we just pray for anyone anywhere that's responded to you, that you would lead them and guide them. And as we enter into this time of response, God, may your presence be felt among us. May, may we, we yield ourselves to you. May we no longer hold back, we no longer make excuses, no longer find ourselves in a place of ritual and routine, but that we would open ourselves to a fresh, new outpouring of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.